please be advised, the following contains descriptions of violence and may not be suitable for all listeners. When there's no accountability, a crime pays. I mean, there's no question about it. That's forensic scientist David Klatso. He thinks the writing is on the wall for South Africa. And he's not the only one. Many South Africans feel hopeless as crime continues to spiral out of control. But there are some ordinary South Africans who are determined to fight back. In this episode of A Criminal's Paradise, we'll hear about some of the extraordinary work being done on the ground to keep us all safe. The sun is setting in New Crossroads, a township on the outskirts of Cape Town. The streets are still busy as people make their way home from work. It's a cold night, and as darkness sets in, a group of people stand out. Wearing neon jackets, they have come together to patrol the streets. One of them is Timbeka Banjwa. She's 65 years old, but you'll find her walking the streets every morning at 5 a.m. with other neighborhood watch volunteers. She's tired of crime, but she believes that if the law-abiding members of her community stand together, they can do something about it. It's worse in South Africa. It's getting worse. Because if something happened in Kailicha this week, Next week it's going to happen here in Gukuleto or Nyanga East or New Crossroads. It's bad. I'm feeling bad about the crime because we are living in fears. We must always lock our kids. Armed only with torches, they are no match against gun-wielding criminals. Yes, other day we were scared because two guys were having guns. So we did run away because we don't have guns and we didn't have bulletproofs. As we dodge puddles after a day of rain, with temperatures dropping rapidly, we pass a health centre that was demolished several years back. A group of teenagers smoking drugs behind what remains of the walls scatter as they see us approaching. Zola Msangana, another volunteer, tells me this is a crime hotspot. The problem is that the children here, our children here, I can say like that, they are too stout here. They do wrong things for the, to the people here. Yeah. They do house breakings, rob people, rob children who, when they go to school, taking phones from them. You see this park, most of the time there's a lot of boys who have died here. They shoot each other here. It's a, a real hot spot, this one. He says mob justice is an increasing reality as people have lost faith in the police services. Sometimes people do that when they are Let's say this thing is happening just now. They phone for the police maybe. We're there too. We phone for the police. Police take three hours. Then the people get angry for that. You see? Then they take the law into their hands. He believes it'll take working with the police to solve the problem. I think we must reunite with the police. If the government, our government can use the community with, with the police, police and make them unite. I think maybe things, crime can be a little bit better here. Crime prevention is key, but when that crime has been committed, what happens afterwards is crucial in the chain of events that leads to the successful arrest and conviction of a perpetrator. 
For Vanessa Lynch, her first-hand experience with the criminal justice system was a devastating one. Her father was murdered in his home in Johannesburg in 2004. It was a it was a, a home burglary. Um, the the perpetrators entered the house and they shot my father several times. He obviously fought for his life and um, survived a few hours um, until he got to the hospital where he later died. The um, perpetrators were never caught and there must have been copious amounts of evidence that had been left behind due to the struggle that my father had before he was shot. Inadequate crime scene investigation meant there was little chance the perpetrators would ever be caught. There had been a number of people who walked over his crime scene. There wasn't DNA evidence taken from his body nor from the clothing he was wearing. Um, DNA at the time wasn't really that prevalent in South Africa and when they closed the case a few weeks later due to lack of evidence, it really struck me that um, this, this really wasn't acceptable and that so many people whose lives were affected by crime, by murder, by rape, um, they, they just weren't getting the justice they deserved as a result of the lack of infrastructures around the collection of DNA, which I knew was such a valuable form of evidence. And so Vanessa started the DNA project that would take her into the halls of parliament where she would lobby for new laws. It took years for those laws to finally be passed. And this really was the catalyst to lobbying government to not only pass laws that enabled us to collect DNA from crime scenes as well as from, from uh, offenders and convicted offenders, but also to create a much more holistic approach around training and skills so that we could build up our DNA infrastructure in South Africa, which previously was just really on a, on a case-by-case basis. Government really put their funding, their commitment behind um, you know, establishing the DNA database, ensuring that the turnaround times were within 35 days. There was great management at the time, and it, it really was a great success. One of the cases I often refer to is a, um, a convicted offender who was in prison for a, a common assault. And when they took his DNA, just because the law said all convicted offenders must have their sample put onto the DNA database, what happened is that it linked to 30 unsolved rapes. She's talking about Sikangele M. Key. Turned out, he was a serial rapist. And in 2017, he was sentenced to 15 life terms behind bars. Had his DNA not been taken for the assault case, he may have evaded arrest for a lot longer. So in 2015, the DNA laws were finally passed um, in, in Parliament and they became operational. They were signed into law. And literally between 2015 and yeah, sort of three to four years later, there was an exponential increase in the number of profiles being added to the database. Um, we have two forensic state laboratories and they were really working at full tilt. At that time, we were probably in the heyday, as you say, getting up to one hit per hour on our DNA database, which was unprecedented. And the number of serial offenders that were identified through this process, again, was, was more than had ever been. She says the database went from about 35,000 profiles to over a million profiles in the course of about four years. Probably around 2009. 19, the, the government simply withdrew funding to the Forensic Science Laboratory. They weren't given the funding to purchase consumables that are required in order for those um, instruments to operate and analyse the profiles. At the same time, there was also 
uh, Scopa got involved and they were looking at issues of corruption um, with, with some of the um, contracts that were in place at the laboratory. So there was no maintenance um, being done because they were, they were investigating every single contract that, that the Forensic Science Laboratory held at the time. So while there was a golden era, it appears much more work needs to be done. And why funding was withdrawn by the government remains a mystery. Repeated attempts to speak to the DNA board, which has parliamentary oversight of South Africa's forensic science laboratories, were unsuccessful. There was no need to do that. So there was never an explanation given as to why this baseline funding was withdrawn. It was probably, you know, some budgetary consideration. The police is a massive department, as we know. In a way, the forensic science services almost needs to be separated from it. The lack of funding created a severe backlog of about 300,000 cases, which translates to millions of DNA samples. When you have a suspect and you're waiting for the DNA evidence or there's been a match on the DNA database, if you're not analysing those fast enough, what happens is that those cases are kicked out of court. And the other thing is that you also have serial offenders who could have been identified they're not being identified because the DNA is not being analysed. So there's been a, a, a real push to government to, to provide more funding to the forensic science laboratories as they were previously doing. And so pressure on government continued. With the massive problem of gender-based violence we have in this country, DNA evidence is considered to be incredibly valuable. So the Minister of Police did um, agree to providing an extra 250 million rand last year um, to, to the laboratories. And slowly, slowly, with that funding, they've now fulfilled all the maintenance contracts, they've filled all the, fulfilled the consumable contracts. Just this intervention has already seen a significant decrease in the backlog. And the most recent report that was given to Parliament shows about a 35% decrease in that number, so they're probably down to 150,000. But remember, that's the ring-fenced amount. That's the amount that they said they were going to reduce bearing in mind that every month they are continuing to get cases. So we are nowhere near um, where we should be in terms of decreasing the backlog, but they are moving in the right direction. And um, I'm hoping that with the onboarding of private-public partnerships, that will increase the capacity that ultimately we will get to a point where the backlog has been reduced and we're back to where we started. DA Shadow Minister of Police, Andrew Whitfield, says while there's never been an explanation about why funding was withdrawn, pressure on government has paid off. What we focused on, or what I focused on, to try and get the committee on board was, you know, instead of looking back over our shoulders, how do we solve this problem and make sure that we get appropriate funding, which we now have? And so we focused our efforts and our fight on on the solutions. Um, the minister didn't appear too concerned in that financial year about DNA, but the committee... Uh, rallied together across political lines, uh, understood the urgency of the situation, put sufficient pressure on the executive, the Minister of Police, uh, and um, we've seen a dramatic increase uh, or reallocation of funding to the SAPS Forensics Division, which has led to an improvement in contract management, the ability to purchase uh, or procure consumables that are fundamental to the analysis of DNA samples, as well as the calibration of highly sophisticated machines that were simply not being maintained and therefore could not process uh, DNA uh, samples through the laboratories. Vanessa believes public-private partnerships are the way to go, and transparency from government will be crucial. 
For her father, the new laws came too late, but she hopes they will bring justice for other victims of crime. If these laws had been in place at the time and proper training had been in place, they would certainly have found DNA evidence, if not on his clothing, um, which we know now almost 75% of DNA is found on clothing when there's a violent struggle between the perpetrator and the victim. Um, certainly, touch DNA now, you know, you, you can simply touch a surface and you can up, uplift DNA. And even if they hadn't have had a suspect at the time, that DNA profile could have been put onto the DNA database, which we now have. And even if that perpetrator at a later stage had been arrested on an unrelated offence, where now we can take DNA from arrestees, they would have been able to link that back to the person who was present at the crime scene. Vanessa continues to work in the DNA field and is the director of DNA for Africa. You know, in a way, my, my father's death wasn't in vain because a lot of the work that I've done since that time has really enabled these infrastructures um, in many ways to, in, in some cases, to be effective in, in bringing uh, perpetrators to justice. And she's not giving up the fight. I don't think the war is lost yet. What I always say is that we are the majority and the minority, which are the criminals, are holding us to ransom. And in many ways, we need to change that narrative. I don't know why we are so complacent in South Africa. I'm not complacent. So the reason I do what I do is I fight against it. But um, I do meet so many people in the work that I do that, that do have this idea that we, we must give in to this. And I think that we've all got to fight harder and we've all got to find ways to, to overcome this imbalance that allows the, the criminals to have such power over the majority of the population. We need to rise up against it. Ian Cameron of Action Society, an anti-crime lobby group, is also determined to make a difference. We obviously campaign on a national level uh, in terms of the DNA backlog, the Convicted Offender Amendment Bill. You know, there are they, several pieces of legislation that we campaign for, but on ground level, we started developing a model that we've piloted now in 2022 that basically not only oversees the prosecution process, but also provides investigation support to people on ground level when they are affected by gender-based violence to make sure that nothing falls through the cracks. He believes there are still pockets of police officers dedicated to fighting crime that remain. There are a lot of rotten apples in the South African police service. We don't need to, you know, um, sugarcoat that. But there are still many thousands of great police members doing so much with so little resources. And and so, yeah, my, my reason, I've, I've said a lot, but my reason for getting involved is, is trying to impact that, that ground level decay that we're seeing. And if we don't appoint leadership according to merit instead of political affiliation, things are definitely going to get worse. And remember that within the next two years, we will lose about 24,000 members that will be going on pension. So that's very worrying because the next intake of recruits that are starting work at the end of the year or next year are only about 10,000 uh, and they are beginners. So we're losing experience at a massive rate. And those are just the ones going on pension. Those aren't the ones that are just leaving or quitting or going to the private sector. Independent forensic scientist David Klatso believes appointing people on merit is key. Klatso has left South Africa for good and believes there's no hope with the current government in place. There's some, there's some first-class judges around, but my goodness me, you can sometimes feel as though you could number them on the fingers of a mutilated hand. 
however wonderful Zondo might have been and however many million rands he might have spent on the Zondo Commission, I'm yet to see a single ANC official uh, in, in orange-coloured pyjamas. It's easy to become disillusioned. Criminal lawyer William Booth has seen the inadequacies of police investigations when cases come to court. I mean, you've read a number of cases recently where investigators have gone and dealt with a crime scene in the most amateurish way. And, you know, that then affects the case in trial. So even if a trial is going, so that prosecutors feel there is sufficient case to take somebody to trial, trial starts, investigator or a forensic investigator gets into the witness stand and is nailed on, on you know, well, you never investigated properly, you went to the crime scene, why didn't you gather the exhibits properly? Was the chain of custody kept from exhibits from the time the exhibits were taken to the time the DNA, for example, was analysed by, you know, at the forensic laboratory? Sometimes the DNA disappeared. Like Vanessa, he thinks public-private partnerships are a possible solution. So if you look at, at, at um, state capture, can the police and can the NPA properly deal with these cases? So I've said time and time again, utilize the private sector, use private um, legal practitioners who have the knowledge, the expertise, years and years of experience, bring them in as prosecutors. You know, it happens in the United Kingdom. Private lawyers are used as prosecutors. One for one case and another case, they back defending people because a lawyer is trained to look at every case objectively. Ian Cameron says there is a lot more work to be done. I think it's very important that communities or community members get involved in policing forums and neighbourhood watches, farm watches, etc., and where they can support NGOs that that work with these things. Obviously, I want to encourage people to support Action Society, but there are many others, like, for example, Rape Crisis in Cape Town, do amazing work to give counseling to women that have gone through horrific things. People need to reach out to these different NGOs and see how they can get involved in a, on, a, on a very practical level. And then lastly, make sure that you support your local police because many of them really do try hard and I know people are fed up. I see the frustration, I've experienced it myself, but I've also spoke to great cops that do try very hard with very little and, um, and you know, taking them coffee on a Friday night at 11 p.m. can make a big difference to just boost the morale a little bit because they're certainly not getting the support from government. Vanessa, Tim Baker, Andrew and Ian and many other ordinary South Africans believe there is still hope for the country. South Africans should never underestimate the power of a unified voice on an issue. At the end of the day, South Africans should not give up hope. Uh, we are intimately aware of um, the, the ever-present threat of violent crime against all of us. But we all need to step up and um, do what we can in our communities through neighborhood watches, um, uh, adding our voices to protests, making sure government hears that we're not going to sit back and just be victims of crime. We're prepared to actually stand up and fight to make South Africa a safer place. A Criminal's Paradise was produced by me, Catherine Rice, field recording and final mix by Bertram Malchas. Multimedia editors Charlene Roert and Nokotula Maniati. Editor-in-Chief Adrian Besson.